This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Katlia, a Dene woman from the Northwest Territories. She's an activist, a poet, a columnist, and a law student in Indigenous legal orders. Katlia's first novel, Land, Water, Sky, won the Northwoods Book Awards in 2021. Here's our conversation. Katlia, welcome. Oh, Masi Cho, thank you so much for having me. How would you present yourself in front of a crowd of fans? Oh, my goodness. I I think I would identify um, right away as somebody who grew up in the Northwest Territories of so-called Canada and a Dene woman raised by my grandparents, Alice Lafferty and Edward Lassard. You are prolific in your writing. You've had three books that have come out since 2018, all with Fernwood. What's that like? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've also written several books, and it feels like that, that must have been such a creatively intense time to produce, to produce like that. Tell me about that. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Um, once I had one book that was in the final stages of an edit, I was on to the next. So I had already kind of had the idea and plotted out the scenes and it was more of a rough sketch. So I think in two years, um, every two years, it's kind of like when another book is, is ready to present itself to the world. And it's just been an interesting journey um, from, from the very beginning. And I'm just honored that I was able to be able to publish with Fernwood for all three of the books. Now, the first is a memoir, and the two after that are novels. They're fiction. What was it like to go from writing nonfiction to fiction? It was a leap. Um, I didn't think I could write fiction. I had never really written fiction other than in school. Um, So, you know, writing something that's already happened is, is pretty easy. You know, it's just recalling, recollecting memories. So that wasn't difficult with the memoir. What was difficult about writing the memoir was that it was very personal. And with fiction, I was able to use truths as inspiration to emphasize um, characters and settings and really um, embellish uh, things that I probably wouldn't be able to write about in nonfiction in a, in a memoir. And I was able to do that um, using fiction. So if there was some difficult moments in my life or diff- difficult people that I've come up against in my journey, I was able to um, kind of make them into a fictional character and then go from there. So it was also a healing process for me. Have you always wanted to write fiction or was it something that really came to you as you were working on the memoir? Yeah, it was something that my mentor, Richard Van Camp, I always say, um, helped me to realize about myself is that, you know, I am a writer and I can write across genres. I don't have to be stuck to one type of writing. I can I can write screenplays if I want or um, for theater. And so that really opened up my eyes to the fact that I don't have to just be um, 
writing about facts and um, even when, when working for the newspaper, you know, I, I was a columnist for a long time and then made that transition over into journalism. And although it is a little bit of a learning curve, um, you still have, as a writer, you still have that foundation and that knowledge to um, be able to go forward and, and use it in other ways. Mm, I love that because I, I feel like fiction is kind of this like scary <laughs> jumping off point if you've never if you've never jumped into it and you don't know if it's any good and you know you kind of rely on what you know as a writer if you're coming at it as a writer who has done column writing or who has written other kinds of nonfiction. so I think that people will be really interested to hear um, to hear your reflections on on that this is this episode is part of a series for Fernward's 30th anniversary and one of the questions that we're asking all of the authors is to describe the process of writing and publishing your books. And what pushed you to actually express yourself in that way? Well, that's a really big question. Um, for me, um, writing Northern Wildflower was more of a journaling experience. And with Land, Water, Sky and This House is Not a Home, the process was different because I had to start um, from from nothing, really, you know, from an idea, I guess, and um, just evolve that idea. And so Land, Water, Sky started off as a short story, and it was actually um, a nonfiction short story about a trip that I had taken with my cousin and my auntie to our homeland, um, in on where my grandma was born and there was just a lot of things that happened on that short trip that I wanted to write about and I wrote it for the CBC um, short story contest and didn't win but um, nonetheless I held on to that story and then I ended up just playing around with it and thought you know why don't I try to make this into a fiction so that I can really um delve into some of these occurrences that happened, the, these uncanny events that happened in real life and, and see where it goes. And so for one um, example is that uh, a woman just showed up on the island out of nowhere and we were all kind of taken aback because it's really hard to get there and um, we didn't hear any boats coming and all of a sudden this woman was just there and we talk a lot about like bush people, bushmen and, and things like that, or like um, um, the Sasquatch and things. So um, after seeing her, she had left alone and said she had some friends with her at the shore. And um, that was just really easily translatable into something that could um, identify as the bushman that we talked about. So I turned her into that. Um, and and it was fun. And so I just kept doing that. And what ended up happening was it just took on a life of its own. And it I couldn't stop um, at that. I had to um, mingle in different characters. And, and it just grew a life of its own. And um, I followed it. I didn't plan. I mean, I know some authors plan like the beginning, the middle, and the end. I didn't plan at all. Um, it just led me where it needed to go. And I trusted that. And at the end, um, it was actually a very jumbled heap of just messy 
probably very difficult to comprehend literature that I sent to um, the editor, Rhonda Cronick, who thankfully was gracious enough to really try to untangle that and help me make sense of it. And um, it was definitely a process in the editing department for sure. I mean, it's one thing to just get everything down on paper and then another thing to sit through like endless edits and um, the editing on Land, Water, Sky was a lot of work and there was a lot of overlapping. There was a lot of loopholes that we had to make sure that we weren't um, like with fiction, you know, you have to make sure that you're covering all your trails and you're not leaving anything open-ended where it's like, well, wait a minute, that can happen if this happens. Um, And the timelines need to be, accurate even down to like the sun setting or the sun is rising and or you know um what season it is those things were really difficult to make sure to remember and I tried putting post-its on my wall and uh, like a character kind of family tree but that just kind of went out the window and I really um had it all compartmentalized in my head And I don't even know how sometimes looking back that that was possible. (laughs) But what I ended up doing was focusing on one character at a time. So it really is a composite novel where each character has its own um, part of the book and it's not in chapters. And I think that kind of helped me to just focus on one um, character and then later on make sure that when when their lives were overlapping with one another, when they met up with each other, that those overlaps were at the right time in the right place. Um, And then with This House is Not a Home, I was finishing up the edits with Land, Water, Sky when I started writing This House is Not a Home. And this, that was really um, inspirational from my work um, as the um, housing chairperson for my First Nation, where I was working with a lot of community people on their housing issues and realizing that there is a huge problem not just in the Northwest Territories but in all of Canada when it comes to housing on Indigenous lands and I was starting to make the connection that we have all been dispossessed from our homelands for capitalism and I wanted to write about it in a way that was empowering for our communities to show that um, we don't have to live like this we don't have to be Um, confined to living in a way that um, settlers have decided for us and that kind of brought to life the idea for this house is not a home and um, again I just started from sort of what I knew um, and what I had been told and stories I've heard that I pieced together to create um, the story of a man starting from his childhood all the way into his adulthood and his struggle with coming up against um, things that weren't in line with the way he was taught uh, on how to live and according to Indigenous principles and ways of knowing and living. Your bio describes you as an activist. And one of the things I'm really interested in is how activists use writing 
to advance their activism. Uh, for you, is it is it elaboration of an activist pr- perspective or, or some sort of uh, issue that you want to explore in a fictional world? Or is it an outlet uh, to deal with some of the problems in the real world that uh, sometimes feel like impossible to fix? How do you mix that activism and writing in your fiction? For This House is Not a Home, I would say that's my most advocating piece of literature that I'm using to as a platform to raise awareness around the housing crisis in Canada. And I didn't set out to do that. It just sort of happened. So now there are people, I guess, that are saying, you know, she wrote the book on housing. <laughs> when really, you know, um, I lived in housing. I I know what it's like growing up in, in housing. And so I have that lived experience, but then also I have that work experience working in my community with housing. And if not, you, if, if I'm not using my platform uh, for good, then what am I doing? You know, like I, that's the whole purpose, I think, is to bring awareness and educate readers on um, issues that, especially that Indigenous peoples are facing, because a lot of um um, people in Canada don't even know the difference between the Northwest Territories and the Yukon Territory. First of all, they don't know their geography. Um, and then there's also the fact that they, a lot of people think it was only the residential schools that had an impact on Indigenous peoples, and that's it. When really it's every single system of government that has impacted Indigenous peoples. It's the education system, it's the child welfare system, it's the healthcare system, it's the jails, it's um, the housing system, it's every single system has has tried to assimilate Indigenous peoples and they've failed. Um, And so that's what This House is Not a Home is about. It really tries to cover all of those aspects to show that, um, okay, yes, we know we are going to um, have to play by the rules of this game, but we're going to also make our own rules and infiltrate this system to make sure that it still very much um, aligns with our Indigenous principles. And um, so for me, if I'm telling a story, I'm also telling a teaching, and that comes back to Um, growing up listening to my grandmother tell me stories every single story she told me that had a message in it and sometimes I didn't realize that it had a message in it but it did and so with land water sky there's messages of climate change there's messages of domestic partner violence there's messages of sexual assault um, and same as this house is not a home it talks about the housing, but it also has a message about um, the indoctrination of Indigenous peoples within religion. Um, and it talks about um, there's underlining themes of um, suicide awareness. And so I wanted to make sure that if I'm advocating and I'm talking about these things, that it's going to be able to bring up discussion in classrooms if it's being um, taught um, so that those discussions can happen and those difficult conversations can happen. And um, if that's the case, then that's that I've done my job. How has your writing developed uh, since your first book came out? Has it evolved in ways that that surprise you? Uh, or, uh, or, or what are your thoughts on how your writing has developed? That is such a great question, because I, um, 
just got this house is not a home in the mail yesterday and yeah and thought I'll skim through it you know and try to pretend that I'm a reader and that I don't know anything about this book at all and kind of take myself out of it and I think the first the third page I saw a mistake and I was like oh no and then I read on and I'm like I see all these little things that I could have changed I see that I said that or the too much in one sentence and I I just pick it apart completely I I tear it apart and I'm like oh my gosh this is like nobody's gonna like this this is horrible like you know how can anybody even want to read this are they going to even read past the first chapter um so I have my um I'm not a perfectionist by any means but I have these moments of cringeworthiness where I'm like, oh my gosh, it wasn't ready to go. Um, it could have been so much better. So for me, I'm, I struggle with that, but I also know that I have come very far with my writing. Um, and I think if I care about it, if I care about the message and the story I'm trying to tell, then that's what matters because then other people are going to care too, hopefully. If I'm just being very careless about what I'm writing, then that's when I should probably be like, why am I even doing this? And I think, yeah, like my, my writing has evolved to the point where I can look at it. I can look at a sentence and decipher it in different ways by saying, um, is this really even necessary? Am I, am I showing and not telling, you know, all these little tips and tricks that I've really learned along the way um, I need to, I need to put in more um, setting to really allow the reader to go there and be there and feel and smell and taste what it is that that character is going through. So I've definitely learned how to be like hone in more on that aspect of um, um, really carving out um, something for the reader where they're, they're just lost in it and, I hope that that's anyway, I hope that they can, it paints a picture for the reader because I know land, water, sky did. I, I was told that it really painted that picture, but I'm always going to get like two sides of the coin. There's going to be people that are saying, Oh, I loved it. And then people that are saying like, did not finish, couldn't even finish this book. So um, that's also something that I deal with and that I've come to realize that I'm not going to be able to please everyone. And that's okay. And some, some people might say that my writing is very simple. I've heard that being said, like it's, it's, my novels are very short. They're very simple. They don't, they're not very poetic and that's fine. Like it's my writing style. I'm very prose. So, um, I've learned to just kind of like go with it. And I think as I continue writing, my writing will only improve. Like if with anything, you know, you become a master of something after you've spent so much time on it. Mm-hmm. I always feel like I need like a special set of eyelids to read um, like books when they arrive that I've written <laughs> so that <laughs> when you see those typos, it's like, no, the, the second set of eyelids is shielding me from seeing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're always our own worst critics, right? And after yeah. reading our own work 50 times over through edits, it gets kind of, you know, it's like, oh, God, I have to read this again. Yeah, I uh, I I found that I wrote anti-abortion activist when I meant abortion activist in my book about feminism. So, no. <laughs> you know, it happens. <laughs> but I think you're right about it, it is about the the way that the words make people feel and not 
those specific issues that they might see that is the most important when we're talking about a final product and and hoping to hoping to to, to reach people on a on a different level with uh, with what we write. Mm-hmm. I have a final question that um, is deep, and then I have some more not shallow questions, but some quick quicker questions to finish off the interview. The final question is. Why is independent radical publishing important for you and important in this moment? Because right now everything is going mainstream. It seems like everything is just getting clumped together in one big machine that is only pumping out the same stuff over and over again, the same formula of writing over and over again. There's no freedom. There's no creativity left in the world if we're going to be just kind of uh, working within the confines of the rules that are set out by a handful of people sitting at a table making decisions. So that's why it's so important to write for independent um, media in all aspects, because Uh, We need that diversity. We need those diverse voices, those voices that are going to bring um, awareness and and make people feel uncomfortable and um, support those that are not that don't have the support they need to get their message across. And it's mostly the minorities and the grassroots people that are feeling the impacts of um, you know, this, this change in society where we really are seeing everything kind of amalgamate together and in just one big, I don't know what, like just controlling kind of beast that is just like rolling over people and people that are in its path. And if we don't have that voice of freedom to just say whatever we want to say, then we're really in trouble the world is really in trouble when we are just limited. And so like the more we can document these in this information, these histories and these histories that have never been told um, people's voices that have never been heard that need to be heard the better because we've been silenced for too long. And that silence is still um, people are still trying to silence indigenous people and um, people of color because what we have to say is true and it's going to change um, it's going to change the world and it's going to change the trajectory of the way uh, people have capitalized on us and uh, we don't want that anymore and we want to change the way the world is the, the, the direction that the world is going in because the direction that the world is going in is not working for anyone society is broken and we need to fix it. And I don't think that the way to fix it is to have only um, just this one way of, of um, this one outlet, I guess, of telling a story. A lot of people have stories and they need to be told. 
Now I want to ask you a couple of shorter questions, and um, we're asking this to all of the authors, and I hope that listeners find these answers interesting, because I certainly have this question of a lot of the authors I admire as well, or these questions of a lot of the authors I admire as well. So the first one is, where's your favorite place to read, and where's your favorite place to write? My favorite place to read right now is outside on my patio. Um it's really nice and breezy. I can hear the birds. My dog is playing with his ball beside me. That's my favorite place right now. And it usually is outside. If it's nice outside, I'll just go sit somewhere quiet, maybe the beach. Because um, I can't read inside. My partner goes to bed super early. <laughs> and yeah, doesn't like the light on. So, um, And then my favorite place to write, I write anywhere and everywhere I can. When I'm in that mood to write, nothing will stop me. And it can be like a noisy mall food court and I will just be writing away. It doesn't matter. I kind of get into this zone and almost like binge write. With Land, Water, Sky, I binge wrote that in probably six weeks, like a mad woman. And then, yeah, and then same as Firekeeper, the next novel coming up. Uh, when we were all on lockdown in COVID, like when it was really like the whole stay at home thing where you couldn't even go outside, I binge wrote that and it helped me to get through all of that. I binge wrote the whole novel. Um, and and it, now looking back, it's a little bit dark. And now I see why it was just the, the times, right? And um, so, yeah, I can write anywhere, but I, I think I most prefer to be really comfy when I'm writing. So usually my bed, I write from my bed and I know it's really not good for my posture, but I don't, I, I tend not to sit at a desk at all. What do you have on your to read pile? Right now I'm reading Res Rules by Chief Clarence Louie and I really love his writing. Um, and I have a pile like a huge pile of magazines called the Beaver Magazine that were donated to me yesterday, actually, or no, Monday, when I went to West Vancouver, there was a woman there um, who had been following my work as the climate writer at the Memorial Library. And she reached out to me and told me that she had a whole bunch of um, magazines just sitting there that she was going to toss away. And um, so I went and picked them up and there are boxes and boxes of these magazines from the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up that I'm going to delve into soon, as soon as I have some time. And a lot of them are from the Northwest Territories and just all across Northern Canada, their stories. And the interesting thing about those stories and, and the publishing behind that is that um, it was at a time where um, people referred to Inuit people as Eskimos, um, where photographs of the indigenous peoples were not named the um, people taking the photographs and the editors didn't care to even figure out what their names were but then there are um, white people in the magazine that are named and um, when it refers to an indigenous person it's like oh here's this Eskimo wearing a parka so it's um, it's interesting to see how we've like come so far yet we've also not come far enough and um, I'm going to look at these these um, magazines and draw uh, more inspiration for my columns to write 
columns upon columns in the northern newspaper that I write for bi-weekly. And yeah, other than that, I um, that's going to take me a while to get through those magazines. So that's my uh, reading list. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? Not so much. I probably should. Um, I've heard other writers say no matter what, even if you don't have any content, um, just to sit at your computer and type for at least 10 minutes a day or, you know, do it daily. And I don't. I, I actually can go months and months and months without writing at all. And then I'll just have like a couple weeks of just nothing but writing and and nobody in my family can recognize me because I kind of take on this other person as a eclectic, I guess, um, writer or whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I don't follow the rules of writing. Um, just write whenever I feel compelled to do so. What are you doing for fun right now? For fun, I am... Oh my gosh. Uh, I don't, I just moved into a new home and it's very ironic and very weird timing that we found a nice home. Uh, it's a character home. Um, and I'm fixing it up and I'm having fun decorating and just making it my own. And, uh, this house truly is a home for me and I'm very grateful that I have a beautiful home to live in. And I, I, I realize that every day and I don't take advantage of that at all. What is a book that changed your life? I mean, when I was younger, I used to read Archie comics. I used to have a huge collection of Archie comics. I think that that had an impact on me. Um, and then I read the Bible from front to back. Uh, that had an impact on me. Um, I guess I'd say one book that can stand out to me is called um, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. That one really, I think, had a tremendous impact on me because I was able to put it into action. There were a lot of tools in that book that helped me get through. Um, I, I experienced a lot of anxiety when I was younger and panic. And um, I learned that we have a subconscious and we have a consciousness and those are separate from each other and that we can, we can steer our own um, thought processes and our own um, decisions in a way that are good for us or in a way that are not good for us. And so I learned that what I was doing was um, not taking control of my own thoughts and my own um, life. And that book really helped me to understand how I could do that in, in a way that was good for me. So I think that that one probably had the most impact on me. That one is the one that comes to mind. The final question is, who is someone you look up to? I look up to my grandmother in heaven. Um, she is, I bring her with me everywhere I go. And um, every time I introduce myself, I usually have her with me and I introduce her. She was so patient and so giving of herself and took such good care of my sister and I that I don't think I could ever thank her enough for what she's done for us and how 
I don't think she really realized while she was here on earth how important she was to us and um yeah I just I look up to her so much in her life she experienced so much so much um heartache um and but also so much um just she had a beautiful life growing up on the land until she was in her 20s she lived completely off the land so she knows about that old world and she told me about that old world and I'm thankful for that and I know a little bit about the medicine teachings and I know a little bit about um just just little bits here and there that I needed to know and I'm thankful to her and I wish she was still alive so I could just listen to her tell me more stories and learn from her and yeah she's just a wealth of knowledge so she's the one I look up to thank you so much for your generosity in this interview where can people find your writing where can people find your books all of my books can be purchased at fernwoodpublishing.com they can also be purchased at your local bookstore um a lot of my freelancing can be found. Um, I'm, I'm doing an article with National Observer soon. Um, sometimes you can find it um, with Indigi News. And I do a column, um, bi-weekly column, as I said, with um, Northern News Services in the Northwest Territories, and that's by subscription. So um, there's a few ways to, to find my writing. It's out there. Awesome. Thank you so much for... Your participation in this project. Okay, Masicho, thank you. Hey, hey, what's your point of view? Hey, you've been listening to my conversation with Katlia as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes.